Grace, mercy, and peace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The jury is still undecided as to what Nathaniel actually meant by his gut reaction to Philip's news that they had found the Messiah. Was he repeating a flippant, sarcastic, pessimistic, throwaway slogan as the Hebrew people began to doubt their Messiah would ever come? I don't think so. I think that's a mighty projection from 20th and 21st uh, century zeitgeist that we cannot put onto these people. Why? These were faithful, masculine men, salt of the earth, who would be talking about the scriptures all day long. As they labored hard together as fishermen. It wasn't in their character to make snippy, petty, effeminate jabs at one another, especially about what was most important to them. Was he simply stating that the scriptures never prophesy the Messiah coming from Nazareth? Possibly. And that would make Philip's extended invitation to study under Rabbi Jesus maybe allude to this. A.K.A. if you come, then you will see for yourself in the living word of Jesus Christ. The new scriptures are being written as we live and breathe and have our being as we walk with this Christ. Come and see for yourself. Or do we read it like Augustine and later Luther? Nathaniel is a young man. He's full of life. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's so darn happy that the one that they finally waited for, he's finally here. The preacher who the guys at work are following, the one that they keep sending me his stuff, John the baptizer, it looks like he's saying this Jesus is the one, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he exclaims, Wow, something good has come out of Nazareth. That's great. I'm pumped. I think it's a mixture. Lutheran pastors, Lutheran people, they're odd ducks. They're hard to understand. We live in a very unique microcosm that secular friends, they, you know, even our family, they, they sometimes they can't relate to it. Many of us have been this way since, ever since we could remember, even before we were ordained or what have you. We think of things differently. We, we, we care very much about what the scriptures say. We, we, for some reason, we think that they're authoritative in our lives. They're inerrant. And if we're any good at all, our conversations with one another, even strangers, are painted completely with these words. You've thought of the perfect sermon, but no one came that Sunday. Or the people that you, you wrote it for and had in mind, 
They went on vacation. You've dreamed up the perfect article to write that everyone's going to be talking about, but you're too tired to type it up and send it in because of your pastoral work that you've been called to. And so you forget about it and no one reads it. You think of the perfect thing to say to your grandson, to your son, to your daughter that married that person that won't let them baptize your grandson, your granddaughter. But when you you come and you're seeing them face to face, you just can't start the conversation. You're scared. In a perfect world, we would perfectly be expressing ourselves through our unique gifts that God gave us to glorify him. But we don't live in that perfect world yet. And so we're suffering. And it sounds goofy. It is goofy that this would be considered the suffering of a Christian, such a mental thing. It seems so self-centered. It sure is unique, though. It's unique suffering, unique to you but common maybe to others experiencing the same thing. Though far from the suffering that our forefathers in the faith had faced. So Nathaniel, Bartholomew, whatever you call him, he approaches Jesus and he says it, and Jesus says it or tells it to him straight just like a carpenter's son would. Look, everyone, here's truly an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. You might unpack that and say, he wears his heart on his sleeve. People think he's naive, but actually, he's young and full of wisdom, and he says it like it is without fear of what it will cost them. I know him better than he knows himself better than he could ever dream of expressing himself to others. I'm going to call him my friend that I chose to be friends with, and he will be with me to the end. I will give him my kingdom, and he will help me rule over it. Whoa. In our world, public praise is few and far between, especially for pastors, especially for Christians. Instead, often we get squished by those that are above us. We're hurt by those that we love and trust the most. We're slandered by people who should be our friends and co-workers and colleagues. But could you imagine receiving this kind of public praise and acknowledgement from Jesus Christ like Nathaniel did? Nathaniel responds in his unique way. He says, he sees what others can't yet. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Our Lord, let him see this and proclaim it joyfully from the get-go. What a blessing. So what was it like for him as he followed Jesus? As he saw the Lord, you know, blessedly in three distinct occasions after his resurrection, even witnessing our Lord's ascension to the right hand of the Father, what was it like for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit 
on Pentecost, to go to the ends of the earth and testify, to never stop talking about that one good one from Nazareth who lived a perfect life, was slain at the hands of evil men and rose again for our sake and knows you even now like no one else. I think it looked a lot like suffering. Both extremes of joy and pain, just like being a pastor, just like being a parent, a grandparent. You're with people in the highest times and the lowest times that not even close family members are willing to allow themselves to see your experience. Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, no stranger of risk-taking and telling it like it is, is sent to Armenia. He witnesses Christ's resurrection to the king. You can imagine how excited he was. He just kept going on and on about how Jesus is the Christ. And the work of the Spirit was successful. Another soul is one from darkness to light. The angels rejoice. The king got it, but his brother didn't. And so Nathaniel was flayed alive like an animal. They cut his skin off with a knife. Could you imagine? And then possibly they crucified him just like his Christ. We get that most disciples and their successors were tortured, put to death, willing to do it for their message of the gospel. But this is such a unique case. Why, God? Why did such a nice, misunderstood, optimistic young man have to die like this? It's detestable. We have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, our own bodies, fragile bodies that are easy to break. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God alone, not to us. It's not about that great idea that we had for a sermon or an article or the perfect witty comment to make when you see your son-in-law the next time. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. The bodies of Christians are temples of God as they are members of Christ's own body. And God has promised us to destroy that enemy who would destroy his temple. He began with the devil, sin, and he's coming for the world who hates you. Hold on to that promise. He will avenge you. He will avenge young Bartholomew. When you're misunderstood, when no one listens, think of flayed Nathaniel. See what it means to be conformed to the image of your Christ. And reflect on these words, since this is a confession study. Paul treats this matter in such a conforming or comforting way in Romans 8, pointing out that in his intention before time began, 
God preordained what sorts of crosses and sufferings he would use to conform each one of us, his elect, to the image of his Son, and that the cross of each should and must work together for the good of that person because they are called according to his purpose. On this basis, Paul concluded with certainty and without doubt that neither hardship nor distress, neither death nor life, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Formula of Concord, solid declaration, Article 11.